Good evening. A major blizzard has New York City in its sights. The vaccination program passes over Latinos and black people. What's the answer? What's behind the huge protests in Russia and a bill to tax Wall Street? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, January 31st, 2021. And the National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning for the tri-state region with heavy snow and extreme winds expected in New York City starting this evening and possibly continuing through early Tuesday morning. As of Sunday morning, the National Weather Service forecast predicts 17 inches of snow is likely to, to bombard New York City with a one in chance, one in 10 chance we could see 22 inches of snow. Mayor Bill de Blasio earlier today uh, said that would, that distance learning would uh, replace school snow days, which have become a thing of the past. Tomorrow is going to be a really tough day. Uh, if you do not need to be out and about on Monday, stay home. If you don't need to be in a car, you can use mass transit. Uh, much better to stay out of your car. We have a real challenge on the roads, on the sidewalks on Monday. So putting everyone on alert, please make to the maximum extent you humanly can make alternative plans for Monday right now. So what we know, National Weather Service has issued a winter storm advisory. We expect heavy snow and gusty wind. Now, it will start tonight, but gets much worse going into uh, Monday. So we could see some uh, beginning as early as 7 p.m. tonight. Uh, we expect Monday, a lot of tough weather throughout Monday maybe into the early morning hours Tuesday. Now, again, we know with the weather, things change, things evolve. We're going to be giving constant updates. But right now, we're getting a projection as much of a total snowfall as, uh, as much as 14 to 16 inches. That's the projection right now. That could get a lot worse. And we remember a few years ago, it did in the biggest snowstorm we ever had. The numbers just kept growing and growing. So 14 to 16 inches would be bad enough. It could be a lot more than that. Uh, so immediately announcing that for Monday, we are not going to have in-person school. We will pivot to remote learning for all our students. So no school in person on Monday canceled now. We will have an update tomorrow about Tuesday. Right now, we do not have a decision for Tuesday yet. We have to see more about how this storm develops. But absolutely in-person schools will be canceled for Monday. Uh, also canceled uh, is the food distribution that takes place at schools on Monday and the Learning Bridges a child care program will be canceled Monday. Now again, everyone stay off the roads. We're going to say it a hundred times. Please do it for your own safety and everyone around you, but also so our sanitation department can do their crucial work and have the, the clear spaces to get out there and uh, clean up the roads. Alternate side parking canceled Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Monday night, the open restaurants, open streets program uh, canceled. Code Blue will be in effect on Monday, protecting folks around the street. And then an update, really important update, vaccine sites. And I'm, again, we want to get everyone vaccinated. We're going to be talking about that later. There's such urgency, but there's also going to be tremendous difficulty and danger getting around Monday. The last thing we want to do is urge our seniors to come out in the middle of a storm like this. It doesn't make sense. So we're rescheduling Monday appointments for vaccine. They'll be postponed. The Monday vaccine appointments we postpone. We'll get them done as quickly as humanly possible, but it's just not going to be safe out there on Monday. And blizzard conditions are expected at times during the day and night on Monday in the city and coastal areas. Extreme winds of 20 to 30 miles per hour forecast in New York City 
with gusts of 40 to 50 miles per hour. And in COVID news, three white residents receive a COVID-19 vaccine for every black or Latino person in the city, according to new demographic data released by the mayor's office on Sunday. The new data shows deep racial inequities in how the COVID vaccine is being administered. The mayor said supply problems were central to the challenge of distributing vaccines equitably across communities of color. He and health officials at a briefing also cited vaccine hesitancy as another difficulty. Surveys have shown that black and Hispanic New Yorkers are more reluctant to get vaccinated than white people. De Blasio says there's a profound disparity about seven weeks into the city's vaccination program. For New York City residents specifically, 48% white, 15% Asian, 15% Latino, 11% black, and then we have a category 10% which is other, which is a category people can choose when they sign up. That could mean a lot of different uh, interpretations by each individual. But let's focus on the specific numbers we have for the four major demographic uh, communities. Let's compare this now to the last citywide data from uh, 2019 of just general population in New York City. So 48 percent of the vaccinations of city residents going to white residents versus the total population of the city, 32% white. Uh, Asian residents uh, getting 15% of the vaccinations. That's about right compared to the Asian population of the city, which is, as of uh, 2019, 14%. So that's almost exactly on track. But here you see now on the next categories, profound disparities. Latinos, 15% of the vaccinations Uh, but so much more of the city, 29% of the city. Um, Black community, 11% of the vaccinations, 24% of the population of the city. Uh, So we're seeing uh, the black and Latino communities getting literally a percentage that's half of what it should be compared to their percentage of city population. Asian community, almost equivalent of their share of city population, uh, white community about 50% higher than population share. I mean, that's just profound disparity. Um, the why, Aaron, look, I think we've got a lot of different factors, but I'd say very quickly, we've got a, a profound problem of distrust uh, and hesitancy, particularly in communities of color. Um, we've got a problem of privilege, clearly, uh, where folks who have been privileged have been able to access uh, the testing in some ways with greater ease. Uh, we've got to have a more systematic approach to ensuring that we focus on the places where the danger is greatest, and that's those 33 communities. This is not easy stuff because we need to convince people to want to be comfortable with the vaccine. So the honest truth is, you know, in the communities that are getting higher levels of vaccination, there's more comfort with the vaccine. But also, that's the exact opposite of the danger reality because everyone's worried. Every senior citizen is afraid. I want every senior citizen vaccinated. But we know factually the seniors in greatest danger are in those 33 neighborhoods. And Mayor Bill de Blasio, the city says it'll now focus on 33 of the hardest hit neighborhoods, an increase from a previous list of 27. De Blasio emphasized a new push to reach public housing residents with additional vaccine sites, upgrade the complicated appointment website 
Add more languages to the sign-up sites and create a family plan scheduling system for eligible workers to bring their eligible family members. Vaccination hubs in those 33 neighborhoods, he says, will have dedicated hours for neighborhood residents. But the mayor adds as long as the federal government fails to provide enough vaccine, the problems will continue. Meanwhile, public advocate Jumani Williams says he's not surprised and he blames the mayor for not reaching out to people of color. Our leaders on every level have really failed the communities, generally speaking, uh, but the communities of more color and the most vulnerable communities, especially throughout the pandemic. Uh, first, in minimizing the infection, now maximizing the injection uh, without the appropriate resources. And I am and continue to try to do my best to work with government partners so that uh, our constituents can have trust in the government. That's important here. It has to be trust for this to work. But they make it difficult with every single failure. And then on top of failure, refusing to admit that they are the reason that this has happened, refusing to admit that there was an error and here's how we're going to make the error uh, better. We all agree that the federal government messed up from the beginning, even with this vaccine. We need more. We have to have more vaccines. The federal government is not responsible for the almost criminal response in these communities. They're not responsible for the numbers that the city just put out. And we're still waiting for the governor to put out the state numbers, which I assure you are going to be just as abysmal. They're not responsible for the executives like the mayor uh, and the governor for the wrong decisions that they made time and time again. The city's website and infrastructure is being overlaid on 20-year-old technology. 20-year-old technology. That's well before the pandemic. And the people who needed to be in the room to put the best website out there weren't in the room. We are also tired of seeing the mixed messages. Mayor, governor, get it together. Get on the same page. It is sad that a group of volunteers have to has the best website out there to get vaccines. Now, neither the city websites or the state websites, they're all trash. And they're not working for the people who need them the most. I am glad that we are almost 90% uh, uh, vaccination in the state. It took a while to get there. I'm glad. But when you look at these numbers, less than half or almost 40% of the pop of the black and brown population, they're, they're being vaccinated, I'm sorry, about 40% of their population. So our white residents are being vaccinated at about 1.5 times their population. That is disgusting. I think it's criminal. And it lies on the feet of this mayor for the job they're doing in the city and for the governor and the job they're doing in the state. We just have to be clear about that. To see so many people coming from outside, I can't fault people for trying to get the vaccination. I can fault our systems for allowing it to happen. Even the people from outside, there's disparity on who's coming in and getting it. But I, I continue to be so angry here. There, there needs to be no more excuses, no more finger pointing, no more task force, no more plans. We know what to do. Let's get it done. We have put forth before that we had an infrastructure that had and did amazingly better than we thought in the pandemic, the census infrastructure. Their primary job was to go to communities 
that government can't normally reach and that government doesn't trust to get them counted. That infrastructure is there. It was a city infrastructure, help coordinated, uh, help uh, funded with some state funds. We have recommended time and time again to use that infrastructure. Some of this is based on our inability to coordinate properly on the government level, but some of it is our inability to put an infrastructure that can reach people who have a legitimate distrust of medicine, especially government-controlled medicine. That infrastructure is there. They've done a good job. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. But the people in charge don't have the right people in the room. And they very rarely come to speak with us before the fire is there. Public advocate Jumani Williams. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Chanting slogans against President Vladimir Putin, tens of thousands took to the streets Sunday across Russia to demand the release of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny, keeping up nationwide protests that rattled the Kremlin. Nearly 5,000 people were detained by police, according to a monitoring group, and some of those were beaten. The massive protests came despite efforts by Russian authorities to stem the tide of demonstrations after tens of thousands rallied across the country last weekend in the largest, most widespread show of discontent that Russia has seen in years. Navalny's team quickly called another protest in Moscow for Tuesday when he's set to face a court hearing that could send him to prison for a long stretch. The 44-year-old Navalny, an anti-corruption investigator who is Putin's best-known critic, was arrested on January 17th upon returning from Germany, where he spent five months recovering from nerve agent poisoning that he blames on the Kremlin. An advisor on Russian affairs to the Obama administration is James Carden. He's co-author of the blog, thescrum.substack.com. He was in Germany recuperating from being poisoned. I mean, many people point to the Russian government as being behind uh, Navalny's poisoning. And I guess the question is, you know, why would they do that? Well, Navalny is a very, very famous anti-corruption campaigner in Russia. And he is believed to be something of a thorn in Putin's side. He was poisoned with the same poison that the Russians allegedly used on the father and daughter in in the United Kingdom. He made his way to Germany. He was treated in Germany. Instead of staying away, he came back and he was arrested upon landing because he was said to be in violation of the terms of his parole for a prior suspended sentence. That was the pretext on which Navalny was brought in. And so what are these protests? What do they represent? They represent a, support for Navalny, B, and probably more importantly, kind of a disgust with the corruption of the Russian government, the oligarchs around Vladimir Putin, who have been somewhat shamelessly raiding the, the Treasury for now two decades. There's quite a lot of disgust in the city centers of Moscow and St. Petersburg with that and the resulting inequalities of income and life chances in Russia. Why is he the president of Russia for so long? Where does he get that support and power? The people that we're talking about today, the people in the streets, in the major metropolitan centers, are a very small sliver of Russian public opinion. For listeners not familiar with Russia, it's sort of the way that we sometimes talk about the difference between Manhattan and the rest of the country. The political views of people who live in Manhattan and the political views of people who live in, say, rural Ohio. Putin has a very legitimate 
support among the vast majority of the Russian population. People still remember what happened in the 1990s, and Russia went through the largest demographic and economic collapse ever recorded in peacetime, and that was under Yeltsin. When Putin took over, he managed to get the country back up on its feet again, and indeed has made it uh, a major power. The a standard of living for your average Russian has improved quite dramatically under Putin. In spite of the obvious flaws of his regime, he does have wide popular support. In the West, we get reports from Russia that are filtered through perhaps your own prejudices. We make a mistake when we see these large protests in Moscow and think that the end is near for the Putin regime. Indeed, we've seen protests like this before. When he announced that he was coming back for a third term in 2012, there were massive street protests. And at the time, in major American journals like Foreign Affairs, for instance, we were told that the end was near for Putin. Putin's not going to survive this. And he inevitably does. We're seeing that kind of the same thing play out now. It's not even near the end for Putin. By no means should we mistake this for the feeling of the entire country, and we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that Putin is going to step aside because of this. Where is this end? It will eventually peter out as these things do. Navalny will find himself sentenced. Probably the same thing that happened to someone like Khodorkovsky, an oligarch turned ostensibly into a anti-corruption campaigner. He will probably be sentenced and the protest will probably peter out and Putin will live to see another day. The end of his term is supposed to be 2024. It wouldn't surprise me if we uh, have uh, Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin until 2030. If Putin is so popular and he has so much support, why poison? That's kind of the question that comes up with these other failed poisonings. If they're so good at it, why do they do it? And I think that one question that we might consider that perhaps Putin isn't behind it himself. And when you think about the enemies that Navalny has made, especially with the oligarchs, with the people who are at the top of the mountain over there, both in private sector and in, in the government, there's a vast number of people who you could probably see uh, who might be behind it. Isn't it all obvious to me that Vladimir Putin has a kill list on his desk and is just checking off his enemies? That's another mistake that we in the West tend to make is that all these actions come from the demand from this one person. It's a lot more complicated than that. James Carden was an advisor on Russian affairs to the Obama administration. He's co-author of the blog, thescrum.substack.com. Over 1,500 people were detained in Moscow today, including Navalny's wife, Yulia, who was released after several hours pending a court hearing Monday on charges of taking part in an unsanctioned protest. And on Wall Street, the harrowing rise, fall and rise again of stock prices for the video game store known as GameStop has activists calling for a return to a century-old idea, a small tax on stock trades, something New York has had on its books since the turn of the last century. Global Justice Fellow at Yale University, James Henry, advocates for equitable taxation. He says if Wall Street is allowed to become a casino, why not tax the trades? I've been working with Senator James Sanders and Representative Phil Steck and the New York State Assembly and, and Senate on a bill to simply stop rebating the stock transfer tax that New York ha has had in place since uh, 1905. And this is a perfect illustration of the kind of fact that the stock markets 
have become a casino. And a lot of the activity that we're seeing is just really socially not productive. The existing tax is the gigantic sum of 0.05% on stocks. So if you buy a $100 worth of Apple stock, uh, for example, uh, you know, we're talking about 50 cents or less, depending on the investor's situation, because those payments are tax deductible. So it's mouse nuts from the standpoint of the of the investors. Why are we having so much resistance to it from the governor and from the industry? It's so small. You have always had incredible resistance to this idea. I think it's because Wall Street just doesn't like to get pushed around here. And in 1905, I mean, the... <laughs> The Wall Street uh, over the objections of a Republican governor who was, you know, just looking to solve a financial crisis that they had in 1905. I've reviewed everything that's been written about this since the bill was passed by a progressive Teddy Roosevelt type Republican, Governor Frank Higgins. The New York Times came out and editorialized, predicted that everybody would move to New Jersey and that the tax would not uh, raise any money. So those kind of two contradictory arguments are always made. The same arguments are being made today. Um, the fact is that this is a very easy tax to administer. It raised close to $100 billion of revenue between 1905 and, and the Kerry administration when you know Governor Kerry in 1978 was under a lot of pressure from Wall Street. New York City had trouble, so he basically started to rebate the tax and from 1982 on, it's been rebated. We've rebated $350 billion to Wall Street investors, most of which goes to people who are from outside of the state because most of the investment that's done in a heck of a lot of the investment that's done through Wall Street exchanges is basically done by non-New York residents. What is the chances yeah. of this passing with the governor and the state legislature? Well, we've actually had uh, a convergence in the last two months of a lot of leading trade unions, the AFL-CIO just endorsed this on Friday. The Communication Workers of America has endorsed it. The Transport Workers Union has endorsed it. And we've also had conservatives endorse it. Tom Allen, who edits City and State, which is the leading newspaper in New York on covering local politics, endorsed it in November. It's a very simple idea. and There's a bill before the Senate and the legislature that will be introduced in February. Bill 3353 is the number. Call your senator and your assemblyman. This has got legs. It's priced to move. The alternative remedies, you know, things like, I mean, people are talking about raising taxes on billionaires and millionaires and the pied-à-terre tax and all these other things are much more complicated. This is a two-page bill to simply stop rebating the tax that's already on the books. It could raise enough to solve the budget crisis. And James Henry is a tax rights advocate and a fellow at the a Global Justice Fellow at Yale University. And finally, calling it the David Dinkins plan, named for the late mayor who created the Independence Civilian Complaint Review Board, Mayor Bill de Blasio has said that the agency will have the right to initiate investigations without an individual complaint and have timely access to information needed for those investigations. These reforms to the CCRB that were announced by the mayor this week include body-worn camera footage and officers' disciplinary and employment 
and histories for substantiated cases. It will also enable the agency to investigate instances of bias-based policing and misconduct. But despite the reforms, the plans to allow community precinct councils to interview candidates for police precinct commander positions, some activists say is just not going far enough. And they're talking about community control of the police, not just community policing. Netfer Freeman is an activist from Washington. This is what community control is, the ability to have the power to hire, fire, set the priorities of the police, the duties, responsibilities, all those kind of things, and even control how funds are allocated to various things. This would be more along the lines of a democratic self-determination, participatory democracy, and this is what people want. Short of that, police will still serve the same role of really being an extension of the state, which which is designed and committed to upholding capitalism and then also the functions of white supremacy that this state was founded on, capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, which is really why we're seeing these unbridled assaults by the police, criminal acts. When we say community policing, we want to make a distinction between that because community policing is just what he's saying. Basically, this extension of the state, the police being able to work with community members to facilitate what their role and function is, which is mass incarcerating us and doing whatever and carrying out what this system wants in order to circumvent that and then find some real justice. We have to give full power in the hands of the people who are going to be policed, the people who are having to have these officers and these agents patrolling their neighborhoods with guns and things like that. They should be able to have the human right to be able to say who those people are, to be able to implement any sort of consequences when they do something wrong, those kind of things, and have binding decision-making power. Right now, these community precinct councils, they're only going to be interviewing people, making suggestions that the uh, the uh, commissioner isn't bound to uphold. In this time of the George Floyd and the uprisings and things like that, they're feeling the pressure to do something that seems unprecedented, but just because it's unprecedented doesn't make it good. If we're trying to eliminate the elitism and classism of this, the people who live there, everyone who lives there, should be able to have a say on this. In fact, it's some of the people who own these places that don't even live in those communities. They just own stuff and they own the apartments, they own the businesses, and they don't necessarily live in those communities. They're the ones that don't even have to live in the community and can be permanent in terms of their financial interest in the community, but not even living in the community. The mayor referred to this incident we had in, uh, back right after George Floyd in Mount Haven in the Bronx, where they kettled and attacked and arrested hundreds of people before the even it was a peaceful, nonviolent protest before the curfew even kicked in. They forced these folks down a dead end, surrounded them and arrested them in a very violent manner. It got the attention of Human Rights Watch. You said it was a human rights violation. And yet, even as late as yesterday or day before yesterday, the mayor was defending it, saying there was, you know, implying there was intelligence that we knew it was going to be violent and we were going to stop it before it got there. You know, I live in Washington, D.C., and the exact same situation happened here around the exact same incidents, this kettling process that they use. We have to really look at this also community control over the police, which is a democratic process. And what's happening with police is not confined to geographical regions in the U.S. It's all over the United States. It's a national problem, the systemic one. It's the role, a fundamental role that police serve in this country. And Nefra Freeman is an organizer with the Pan-African Community Action Group and an analyst at the Institute for Policy Studies. 
And that's some of the news for Sunday, January 31st, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Max Schmid. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>